0: Good morning, test, test, good, right, okay, well, we're going to continue to look at the book of Daniel, and uh, if you were here two weeks ago, we began the book of Daniel, uh, covering some introductory thoughts, uh, and then a few thoughts from Daniel chapter 1, so we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 1, and I do recognize that we we looked at Daniel chapter 2 last week, Uh, But there are just a few things that were left undone from Daniel 1 we're going to go back and look at uh, this morning. And I do appreciate the opportunity and the slight schedule change to be able to come back and and finish up some of these things from Daniel 1. So before we begin, let's just just pray and ask the Lord's help and and blessing. Our Father, we do thank you for uh, this time to look into your word. And we thank you for the way that it, it um, instructs us, and the way that it uh, guides us. We thank you for uh, the fact that it is profitable, uh, profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and in righteousness. We just pray that you would help us, our Father, as we look into your Word, uh, guide my thoughts, and I just pray that you would um, would help us to understand it, would help us to understand it and to apply it as well to our lives, that we would be changed. Changed by you, changed by your spirit, changed by your word, I pray. We do commit the time to you. We thank you for the uh, tremendous example that we have in Daniel, a a real historical figure, and the ability we have to look back and to learn from him. We ask your help, and we ask that you would help us to look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Daniel chapter 1, and uh, again, we're going to go back and and just consider a few things from Daniel chapter 1. Um, We had a a few slides here that I was going to go through briefly. Um, That PowerPoint comes back up. They're excellent. So Daniel 1, uh, just very quickly because we did cover this, and I apologize if you weren't here two weeks ago, but I'm going to skim through some of this real quickly. But the book of Daniel is both practical and prophetical as well, and uh, there is a major theme running through Daniel. That's the sovereign hand of God uh, working among the, the, the affairs of men. And um, there was a key verse there there that we pulled out from Daniel 4 that says, That the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And uh, uh, we just had a brief outline for Daniel chapter 1 as we uh, will read it again uh, shortly here. A siege and a selection in verses 1 to 4, a provision and a purpose in verses 5 through 8, Uh, a request and a response, verse uh, 8, the second half of verse 8 to 17 and then a meeting and a miracle in uh, the latter uh, part of the chapter, 18 to 20. Um, so one of the things that we left off with last week was uh, this thought of the spirit of Babylon. Daniel 1 in verse uh, 1 says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we have a, a pagan king coming to Jerusalem, where the remaining uh, Israelites were, and besieging it, encircling it, and basically uh, uh, making war with the people there. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then it says this, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants some of the nobles. So I'm going to stop there just for a moment. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar besieges the city of Jerusalem. The children of Israel had been living in a backslidden state, an idolatrous state. They uh, certainly were not uh, uh, fulfilling what God had called them to do, what God had called them to be. And so God is going to allow. And we see here that Daniel recognizes that this just wasn't happenstance. This just wasn't an act of war, so to speak. It was an act of war, but it was bigger than that. It was that God, that, that he says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, uh, uh, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So God is working here among the children of Israel. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to go and he's going to take some uh, of the, uh, it's, well, it's listed out there, but some of the children of Israel themselves, the, the cream of the crop. We, we read that last week, right? He's going to take some of the best of the best. He wants to take young men and bring them into his kingdom and he's going, to, he's going to train them, and he's going to feed them, and he's going to, he's going to educate them, and uh, eventually because he wants them to serve in his palace. So, hey, that's a pretty good strategy, right? If you're going to go and you're going to uh, you overtake another country or another city to take the best of the best there, the best young people. It says young people that are quick to understand. They also were good-looking and gifted and so forth, knowledgeable. These were smart, educated young people. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to take them and bring them into his kingdom, into his city. And I say that to just go back to this briefly, that uh, where we are is that Daniel and some of his friends, and it seems that others as well, it says among those, there were others as well apart from Daniel and his friends, were taken out of Judah, out of Jerusalem. They weren't put to death as maybe they could have been, but they're brought into the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things that the Lord really laid on my heart is this idea of Babylon and the spirit of Babylon that this was a pagan culture. it was a, a, a culture filled with gods and yet godless. they had no reverence, no respect, no honor for the true God of heaven. They made their own gods, they had idols, they were a land of idols and idolatry, and uh, there were lots of things that there are lots of things that this land represents so Two weeks ago, we went back and looked at how this all began, right? In Genesis chapter 10, we read about Nimrod, and that was the very early stages of what was Babel to become Babylon. And then Genesis 11, well, we all know that story, right? That was the Tower of Babel and how the people got together. And uh, boy, there are some implied things in the language of the people. You know, let us build a city uh, whose top is in heaven. We're going to build a tower up to heaven. And uh, there's no thought of God. There's no there's no uh, there's no prayer there. There's no dependence upon God. But it was all about man and what they could do. They were going to build a city. Uh, we mentioned as well, even down to the very articles that they used to build this tower. They were articles that were man-made, brick and slime and so forth. So I can't go back into all of that because I want to move through that. But the bottom line is that there's a uh, throughout the Bible as we look from Genesis. 11 Daniel, and we read about Nebuchadnezzar's own mindset. Remember in Daniel 4, we read a few weeks ago how Nebuchadnezzar would come out and he would look upon his, his, uh, his city, upon this tremendous, from what historians say, it was a magnificent city, a walled city, a protected city, a wealthy city. And he would look out upon it and say, is it not built for my glory and so forth? And he was just totally consumed with what he had done, having no thought for the God of Heaven. And so, this is the spirit of Babylon. And the Book of Revelation will pick it up in Revelation 17 and 18. And again, I mentioned before, I don't pretend to understand every part of it, but there is no doubt that there's a connection there because there's a a, a future city, so to speak. Uh, it's called Babylon the Great, and there's a connection there to these people who are they're godless. And there, well, a few of the things we notated, and we're just going to take uh, just a look back briefly at these. It's a religious city, and yet a godless city. It's a, a city filled with materialism. Materialism, a, a city of people that that just love their possessions. They love their things. They love their things, but they do not love God. They want the provisions of God, but they don't want God himself. And this is this is the spirit of Babylon. So it's a city of religionism, materialism, hedonism. Hedonism is just the pursuit of pleasure. It's, a, it's an excessive, unbridled pursuit of pleasure to fill the flesh, to fill the flesh with, with anything and everything, to seek satisfaction that way. And this is uh, Babylon. And ultimately at the center of it all, of course, is humanism, humanism, Humanism is basically well. Let me let me show you two things that, and I think uh, I might have showed these a couple of years ago, but boy, these were uh, the first one is just kind of just kind of funny I think, but let me go back to that. So this was Time Magazine, and humanism is all about me, right? It's all about me. Time Magazine says this is the me 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 generation, and here is a young lady snapping a photo of herself. You know, I think a few weeks ago. When Nate Bramson was here, he gave us a little of his thoughts about selfie pictures, you know, and uh, not n- n- to demean to, 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 to such a thing. But, but maybe there's something in the spirit of it that, that, that this is a generation who thinks that the world resol- revolves around them. They think that they are the center of it all. And, and, and so, well, it's illustrated there, and take no offense to it, but I've got to think, too, on my mind about selfie pictures, you know, this, this mindset. That, that well, we'll, well, we'll just put ourselves out there and we'll do it even hour by hour or whatever it is. But anyway, so uh, that's Time Magazine. So this is what I, I wanted to get to, though. So this is American Humanist Association. So you say, what is humanism? Well, this is from the American Humanist Association. This is alive and well today. This is a real organization. And this is the crux of it. If you want to say, what is humanism? What is the spirit of Babylon? It's that we can have good without a God. We can be good. We can accomplish good. We can do good. We are good apart from God. But we know from the Scripture there is none good but God. None good but God. And all good things. We just heard from James chapter 1 today. Uh, uh, The Father of lights. every, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. So this is humanism, that we can be good. We, we we are good. We can accomplish good without a God. And this is alive and well today. And I might say as well, and this is just maybe observation, but I think there are probably many, many, many out there who you may never hear say, I am a humanist, but they've adopted the spirit of humanism. Many in government that think that, well, we can pull the greatest minds together. I mean, when's the last time you've heard any... Major leaders say we need to get on our knees and we need to pray we need to call out to God for help But no, there's always this mindset that well if we get the best minds together and we can all get on the same team We can pull ourselves out of this and we can do good. We can we can make good of all of this mess and indeed there is a lot of mess around us. So What is humanism? Well, there it is defined good without a god And uh, that's from the American Human Association. So just briefly, I just want to read this because this was so uh, uh, telling to me and it's so interesting how the spirit of Babylon, if you look back from Genesis 11 to Daniel 4 and into Revelation, it is, as we mentioned before, of man, through man, and unto man. That is to say that man is the source of... Man is the means, and man is the end, or so he thinks. He thinks it's that in and of himself, he is the source of it all. When they came to Babel, they said, we will do it. We will do it by our, by our means. By, we will be the means by which it will happen. We will make it happen. And ultimately, it's for us. It's for our glory. We are the end of it all. And this is from the American Humanist Association, and this is their closing statement. And it says, so stand the thesis of religi- religious humanism. Though we consider the religious forms and ideas of our fathers no longer adequate, the quest for the good life is still the central task for mankind. So what is the end of everything, according to the Humanist Association? The good life. That's the, that's the end result. But we know that's not from God. That's not from the scriptures. Man is put here, and in, in God would desire a relationship with him that we could walk with Him, that we could talk with Him, that we could know Him. The good life is not the central task for all of mankind, is it? Sometimes people may say that about America. Well, actually a lot of people say that to me. I'm living the dream. I'm living the American dream. Well, God has more than the American dream than just to be able to live and and pay the bills and then retire on on a hearty income or whatever it is. There's more to it than that. But they say, so I added that, the end, because they're saying the central task, man is the end, the good life. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams. That is to say, man is the means and that he has within himself the power for its achievement. Man is the source. And I tell you, if you compare these words to what's written in Genesis 11, they're, they're almost a mirror, almost a mirror. And I'm going to read those just so I, I don't misquote it again. It says in Genesis 11:4, they said, Come. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So this is, this is humanism. And the reason why I, well, the Lord laid this on my heart, but one of the reasons why this is very important is because this is where Daniel and his friends were brought into. This is the kingdom they were brought into. So, you know, sometimes we think, and, and it's true, we live in a, in a pagan world, right? We don't, we don't go to stores uh, frequently other than maybe Chick-fil-A and hear Christian music and see people praying and all that kind of a thing. We live in a pagan, pagan-type society. Well, there was nothing, no society perhaps more pagan, more materialistic, humanistic than what Daniel and his friends were bought in, brought into. And yet, Daniel found a way, and his friends as well, to stand firm for the purposes of God, to obey the Lord amidst the humanism. And it's interesting as well that he found a way to balance because, well, we'll read, he didn't reject the education. At least we don't read of him rejecting it. We don't read of him rejecting the name that they gave to him, but he did reject the diet. He found a way by God's grace, I can only say, by God's wisdom to live in a paganistic humanistic culture in society and yet to be a light for the God of heaven. Isn't that a tremendous thing? Isn't that where we find ourselves? We find ourselves in the midst of a paganistic and religious. Yes, I've got lots of religious neighbors, but I don't have many that I really think know the Lord. And so this is where they were brought into. So this is important because as we go through uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, we need to understand this is the society they were in. This is the godless and perverse society they were in. And yet what an impact they had. What an impact. And I'm not saying God is going to call all of, this, all of us to this. But think of Daniel, a young boy, 14 or 15 years old, uh, uh, many scholars believe, taken out of Judah, Jerusalem, brought into the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And for the next, I think, 70 approximate years, maybe more, he's there and he's witnessing, being a witness for the God of heaven to the kings of earth. He was like a right-hand man to at least three kings. And so he's given an, an, an incredible, incredible place. Of course, we see, and Daniel knows, that this was God sovereignly working. But what a testimony for someone who would stand firm. Uh, I don't know that I would be able to be such a witness in a paganistic culture. Here the king has brought him in, and he was treated well. Hey, again, he could have been killed but Nebuchadnezzar brings him in and rears him up. And he's going to educate him and he's going to feed him and he's going to be part of the king's palace. That's a pretty good deal. There's a whole lot of temptation there. But Daniel stood firm and his friends as well for the Lord. And so uh, this, is where, uh, this is where we find them. Now, one of the things I wanted to touch on just briefly from last week that we didn't get to is or from two weeks ago is, well, what does the Lord have to say about, we know, I know that you know that these things, religionism and and so forth, are hedonism, are not of God. I know you know that. But listen to some of the words. Think of just religion for a moment, okay? Matthew 23, you could go there. Matthew 23, and as you turn there, these are the words of the Lord Jesus, and they're scathing, a scathing rebuke to uh, some religious leaders, And, um, well, we know, of course, I think John 3 was mentioned this morning. Nicodemus was a a, a teacher in Israel. Remember the Lord Jesus said, aren't you a teacher in Israel? You don't know these things? Hey, there's lots of religious people out there that, that don't know a thing about God's purposes and God's plan and about the Word of God. And in Matthew 23, I just want to read a couple of words. Listen to verse 13 and 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These are religious leaders. Hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Again, look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Wow, what a statement. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. This is religionism. This is what he's condemning. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So. The Lord Jesus had some very stern words to say to religious leaders who practiced religious things, but they did not know the God of heaven. They had never been washed. They had never been cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And these were religious men that despised the Lord Jesus. In fact, some of these leaders themselves would be the ones who would lead the mob and say, crucify him, crucify him. We We do not want this man to reign over us. Religionism. And... Think of this, too. Turn to Philippians 3 as I say a word or two about this man, Saul. Saul, otherwise known as Paul, was a very religious man as well. Very religious man. He was a religious Jew as well. But for the first uh, part of his life, he didn't know the Lord Jesus either. He had never come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And... Uh, is religious as he was. Well, listen to what he says. He says in Philippians 3 verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Here was a man who by his own word and testimony, and from what we know of him, was a religious man. A religious man. He practiced religion. He was religious to the core. He had the the background. He had uh, uh, the the heritage, so to speak. He also had the training. But listen to what he says in verse 7. But what things were gained to me... These I have counted loss for Christ. Brothers and sisters, religion will never do it. God help us not to get caught up in religion. He says, what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christianity. Well, that's not what he says, and I'm not demeaning the term. But for Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. As I understand it, that would mean all of his religious activities, all of his possessions, everything he had. He says, I count all things lost. They're like dung to me for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. There's something in the personal and intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that far exceeds anything else. All of the other, the the religious activities and all of that one preacher said that religion, it will give you something to do like a rocking chair, but it will never get you anywhere. And we know from Matthew 23, it gets you somewhere in a sense. It will send you to hell. That's what Jesus said. And you're taking others down with you. So now I understand that many of you are saying, and I'm saying as well, I well, that's not me. I'm not a, I'm not a religious person. I was never a Pharisee, never a priest or anything like that. But we certainly can get caught up at times, sometimes, Hey, we can go through our week, we can go through months at times without ever intimately walking with the Lord Jesus, without speaking with him. Paul says it's for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For that knowledge, to know him, not just to carry about religious activities, not just to come and go out of church, not just to, you know, like some say, well, I I did my devotions and check it off the list. But this is a real relationship that he wants to walk with you and he wants to talk with you and commune with you. What a privilege and what a blessing. This is life. Well, the Lord Jesus said, right? This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the joy of of Christianity. It's not religious activity, but it's walking with him and knowing him. So what does the New Testament have to say about religion? Well, religion uh, is certainly not of God, not in that sense at least, but it's knowing Christ, It's knowing Christ. And you could go on in Philippians 3, some tremendous verses there. That's some of my favorites in the scriptures. Um, And what about materialism? What does the New Testament have to say about that? Well, we looked at Luke briefly, briefly at Luke 12 last week. Just go to because we're going to be short on time again. But look at 1 Timothy 6 as we think about some of these things uh, that... Uh, were we're part of the spirit of Babylon, and no doubt part of the spirit of the land that we live in. And uh, so look at 1 Timothy 6. Listen to these words. They're so clear and so so convicting. It says this in 1 Timothy 6.6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. So what does the scripture have to say about materialism? Listen to this. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. What a life. What a life. Paul says uh, 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 in Philippians 4, the words is me, but he is uh, contentment. There's contentment. And whatever state I am, I have found therewith to be content. Wherever God has put me. Listen to this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Not those who are rich. I understand, we understand that God at times blesses some with riches and others, uh, uh, you know, wonder whether it's really a blessing at all. But God gives some riches, understood. But those who desire to be rich... Oh, friends, if you're lusting after riches, listen to the warning of Scripture. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money... Not money itself, understood that it's a a part of our stewardship. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Can I tell you that in the, the line of work that God has given to me, and my friend here, Chris, can testify to this, we look at people all day long who have literally lived that out. The love of money. They have, because of their immense love for materials, for money and what money can buy, they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What an awful thing. And I think it's possible even for for the Christian to fall into this, to fall into the trap of loving money, of having a, a lack of contentment with where God has put you, with what God has given to you, but loving more, loving more, loving more, loving money. And the warning is that those who do that, those who live that out, Well, they will pierce themselves through with many sorrows. And I look at people all day long who have literally just caused themselves some of the deepest wounds, not fleshly wounds, but some of the deepest wounds in life, in their relationships uh, and in their, uh, their, their character because of the love of money. What an awful thing. So the New Testament has lots to say. There's lots of other verses we could go to, Matthew 6 and so forth. We looked at Revelation 18 last week. And uh, I just want, let's, let's read a verse there from Revelation 18 because this is so powerful. And we read a verse from Revelation 18 two weeks ago, but not these verses. Listen to this, Revelation 18 and verse 15 says, The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city. What city? Babylon. Babylon that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance, and they cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads. They cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. What a warning. What a warning. The materialism, it will never ever amount to anything but a heap of sorrows. If that's your goal in life, if you lust for money, you lust for the things that money can buy, it's a heap of sorrows all is all it is. And so many times we can see in life those who they think they've acquired it, and it all comes crashing down. And what a misery it is. What a misery it is to get to that place anyway, even if you do hold the riches a miserable place. So the New Testament has much to say about this. Um, hedonism, I would go into that, but I'm going to go back to, to Daniel 1. There's lots to say. The At the end of Philippians 3, it speaks of those whose God is their belly, their enemies of the cross. And uh, Romans 13 says to make no provision for the flesh and so forth. Of course, we know that that, uh, that uh, the, the lust for pleasures is not going to satisfy. I think of that hymn that we sing sometimes, uh, None But Christ Can Satisfy. It says, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. That's what the Word of God has to say about materialism and hedonism. That like broken cisterns, you can, you can continue to go to the broken water pots of the world and you can stoop to drink, but the water will flee from there faster than you were able to stoop and drink it. And the hymn writer says, they mock me as I wail, even as they fled, as, even as I stooped to drink, the waters fled and mock me as I wailed. What a horrible, horrible way to live life. There's so much more in Christ. What things were gained to me, Paul said, I have counted loss for Christ. There's so much more in him. So much more to be had in him. Um, So uh, we're going to go back to Daniel 1 uh, just for a couple of minutes. And one thing that if you have any desire to read it as you think of thoughts concerning this triangle, so to speak, and this humanism, read Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If there's one chapter in the Bible, that's the I chapter. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, I, 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 I did this, I did this, I built wells, I had servants, I accumulated wealth, I had wives, I did, I did, I did, just like this. It was all about me. I did everything I could. And at the end of it all, this man Solomon would say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There was nothing to hold on to there. Um, I would love to read it with you. We're going to go back to Daniel 1. Because I want to just consider a thought or two as we close uh, Daniel chapter 1 and then we'll proceed, Lord willing, I think, uh, going into Daniel 3 as we consider Daniel 2 last week. Imagine this now, right? Here are four young men. It says that they were among others. There were probably others from Judah that were brought, but these four young men are highlighted. I don't know whether the others that were there Uh, did not stand with Daniel, and that's why they weren't mentioned. I don't know, and that would be a sad story, right, if there were others that came from Judah that knew the true and living God, but they didn't stand with Daniel, and maybe they just succumbed to to Babylon. But think about this for a minute. Here were four young men being led into Babylon, captives by the world's standards, but free by God's standards, free by the word of God, The freedom they had was a freedom that their captors could never imagine, a freedom that not even Nebuchadnezzar himself had. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar would learn of the God of heaven in in chapter 4. He were men who by the world's standards were captives, but by God's standards they were free. One thing that um, I heard that was so encouraging to me, and I know that today is um, Father's Day, but this was the thought. And um, I don't think there's really necessarily scripture that would explicitly say this, but I think it's a legitimate thought nonetheless. Israel, Judah, was backslidden when this was happening, when Nebuchadnezzar was besieging the city and pulling out captives and so forth. It was an idolatrous nation. They had left what God had called them to. But this was the thought, that somewhere, somewhere in backslidden Israel, there probably were some, some moms and dads, some mothers and fathers, who loved the Lord, and were faithful to Him, and were training these young men, who were instilling into them, God-fearing character, uh, instilling into them the Word of God, and a knowledge of God. We don't read out that I know of anything of Daniel's parents, but just to imagine a young 14-year-old man, he could have, apart from godly parents, maybe been a, a man that stood firm for God, but... But by and large, when you find a young person, young teenager like that, that, that is that is uh, sold out to the Lord and willing to take a stand for the Lord, it's because there's some godly parents, a mom or a dad or both, maybe grandparents behind, that, that were training them and instilling into them the fear of the Lord. So, <clears throat> Daniel 1, here they come. And they enter into this city and uh, they are... Captives, indeed, by by the world standards, but free. One uh, well-known preacher spoke of uh, a time that he had an opportunity to visit Angola prison, and I mentioned this before because it was so encouraging to me. But this uh, preacher was given the opportunity to come and visit Angola prison. is Louisiana State Penitentiary. It's the largest maximum security penitentiary um, in the United States. And I think 70% of the people there are lifers. They're there for life. And uh, there's a a fairly large number of men on death row as Louisiana has a a state uh, death penalty. But one of the things he said was that there's been a tremendous transformation there by uh, by the gospel because a warden was put in there when apparently they had nowhere else to go. And he said, I'll do it if you allow me to do it my way. And uh, there are now uh, churches there, and he pipes in Christian music and has Bible studies and so forth. But the point is this. This famous preacher said he was there, and he was talking to one prisoner, and he said something to him to this effect. He said, tell me, what is it like to know that you'll never get out of here? And the prisoner said to him, I have found a freedom in here that I never had on the outside world. There's something that I found here in Christ, a freedom that is so much greater than anything that I ever had on the outside world. He said, don't pray for me so much as please pray for my family because they're on the outside world and they think they're free, but they're not. They're slaves. Slaves of sin. And uh, what a powerful, powerful testimony. So, Uh, The young men are brought in and it says in verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. It says from among those, the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So they're brought in, and it seems that Nebuchadnezzar and his servants are going to do whatever they can to to press upon them, to conform them to the ways of Babylon. They're going to give them a new education. They're going to give them training. They're going to give them a new diet. They're going to give them a new name. Uh, It's very interesting um, that the names that are given to them are, are Babylonian names, of course. And uh, these four young men had names that associated them to to the God of Israel, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, And I'm just going to read to you briefly this. The name Daniel, meaning God is my judge, was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning Bel's prince. The name Hananiah, meaning beloved by the Lord, was changed to Shadrach, meaning illumined by sun god. The name Mishael, meaning who is his God, was changed to Meshach, meaning who is like Venus. The name Azariah, meaning the Lord is my help, was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Nego or Nebo. So they did everything they could to conform them to the Babylonian system. They were put into a place where the world was pressing upon them. We indeed are in a place like that ourselves, aren't we? Romans 12, 2 says, "...and do not be conformed to this world." but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're in a place where the world would do everything they could, sometimes unknowingly, right? I mean, the world, in a sense, there's a blindness there. There's a a captivity there where they maybe don't even realize what they're doing. But the world is pressing upon you to change you, to to, to, to educate you with their system, to train you in their ways, to give you their diet, to maybe even assign you a name, so to speak, to change everything about you but you have a place with the Lord. Daniel and his friends stood firm upon what they knew and what God had given to them. didn't matter whether they were given education. We don't read, in fact, that they, that they denied the education. We don't read that they, that they refused it. We don't read that they refused any, anything other than the diet. They by somehow found, by God's wisdom, the ability to live in this land and to, to uh, stand for the Lord. And uh, to not be defiled, that was the key. They did not want to be defiled, um, but to acclimate somehow. And so we are called, right? We are in this world, the scriptures say. We're not of this world. And so we have a place in this world, as God has given us. We understand we have to have homes and so forth. And Jeremiah 20, 29, 39, I forget. But Jeremiah the prophet, it tells them to, to buy land and to, to marry and so forth. And we're in that place, right, here in our Babylon, where we are... We are going to be part of this world, so to speak, but we're to stand for the Lord. And Daniel's key again, I mentioned this last week, but this was so meaningful to me, not just to be different for the sake of being different. We're not just trying to be different in 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 an odd way, but to not be defiled, that we would not be defiled by what the world presses upon us. So in a lot of ways, we're going to look like our neighbors. A lot of ways, we're going to look like them. We may talk like them to some extent, but not to be defiled. And that's, that's where Daniel and his friends were. It seemed to be a small thing, right? It's just food, just food, just a little bit of diet that the king put before them, the daily provision, seemed to be a small thing. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. If you go back to the garden scene, it seemed to be a small thing there as well, didn't it? It's just, it's just one tree. I mean, God has given you all the other trees. Why not take, take, take a piece seems to be a small thing. But where Daniel knew that God had commanded, Daniel knew and believed firmly that God's ways were better than man's ways, that what God had prescribed was better than the provision of Nebuchadnezzar. And to such an extent that he would even call upon them to examine him. There was a tremendous boldness. Daniel purposed in his heart, verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank, Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Verse 10, the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. Why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. But Daniel said to the stewards whom the chief of eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants. Test us for 10 days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. There was such a boldness in Daniel because he believed the word of God. And my question to you this morning, one of them from this text, do you believe the word of God like Daniel did to such an extent that you would put yourself out there and say, well, whatever the case is, I, I, and, and, and in a humble way it seems like Daniel said, I don't want to be part of that. To such an extent his boldness would say, well, test us, let's do it and test it. for. I believe the word of God. I believe that what God has prescribed is better than the provisions of the king. And that's what Daniel and his friends did. And of course, many of you know the story. Things turn out well for them. And I have to conclude this, but they turn out well. Uh, They're examined and they find that they're better in appearance. They're fatter. Uh, We don't often call each other fat in a good way, but in this sense it was good. They were fuller than the other young men and things turned out well for them. God was sovereignly working. I want to close with this. It says in verse 19, Then the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In all matters, in verse 20, of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. When they were put under the microscope, they were found, they were examined, they were interviewed, and they were found to be ten times better. What a miracle. God was working. We know that. The scriptures tell us about someone else in the New Testament who also lived a life that was, that was exemplary. And he was examined and he was poked and prodded throughout his existence here. And he was found to be 10 to hundreds of times better. People would look at him and say, no man ever spoke like this man. The man was Jesus our Lord, our Savior. He was examined. He was interviewed. Remember when he came before Pilate? It says Pilate talked with him, and he says, I've examined him. I find no fault in him. There's no fault there in this man, Jesus. There's a little type, a little picture here in Daniel 1 of the Lord Jesus, the one who was examined, interviewed, poked, prodded throughout life. He was found to be exemplary. Even as a young man at 12 years old, he he went and he talked with, with the scholars, and he wowed them. He was exemplary. But whereas Daniel continued before the king, this man, Jesus, was cut off, Isaiah 53.8 says. He was cut off from the land of the living. And I just want to take two things from that as we close. Number one, just because we obey God's word does not mean things are always going to work out just well. In Daniel's case, wow, things worked out very well. He was lifted up. He was put to 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 the right hand of the king. And, uh, and, and he was allowed to change his diet and all of that. Things worked out very well for him. But we know that that's not always the case. And the scripture is filled with examples like Joseph and so forth who, who endured hardship because of their obedience to the word of God. But the second point is regarding the Lord Jesus, that he was examined, he was found to be holy, spotless, without blame, and yet he was cut off from the land of the living. And God... What a, what a sovereign working was there. Well, God was working with Daniel, God was working among the people and in the life of the Lord Jesus as he was cut off. And what men thought was victory, God found as his own victory because the Lord Jesus Christ defeated death. We sing sometimes, By weakness and defeat he won a glorious crown, trod all of his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. Here was God sovereignly working, that the one who was lifted up before men on the cross put to death And man and perhaps Satan thought he had his victory, but God was sovereignly working and God overruled. And among that, the greatest good that could ever come has come to mankind. May God help us as we take lessons from the book of Daniel. And we'll continue in weeks to come to look at Daniel 3 and so forth. And we'll see that Daniel faces trials. He faces difficulties, but God is sovereignly working. May God help us to trust him. Our Father, we do thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the way that it guides us and leads us and directs us. Help us, our Father, to understand it rightly, to rightly divide it, and to apply it. Indeed, we do not want to be hearers of the word only, but doers. We want to do the things that you've called us to do. We want to be obedient. Help us to do just that. And this evening, Lord, as many of us will be out there seeking to be a light to the world around us, help us to be like Daniel, to stand firm to believe your word wholly. I know at times, Father, my faith shakes as I'm out there or among others who ridicule. Help us to believe your word wholeheartedly and to portray it in a loving and humble way just like Daniel did. Humbly, lovingly giving testimony to you, O God, the God of heaven. We give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ and all he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray.